So, you've heard about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You've heard of this movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, one of the most famous westerns of all time. Clint Eastwood, uh, probably his first really big, recognizable role. But that movie was the third western that Clint Eastwood did with a director named Sergio Leone. The first one was the movie that kind of kicked off the spaghetti western thing and launched hundreds of imitators over the next decade or so. And The Good, The Man, The Ugly is probably the flashiest one, the most famous one. But the one in the middle does not get enough attention in my opinion. Kay, have you seen for a few dollars more? The man with no name is back. The man in black is waiting. A walking arsenal who uncoils, strikes, and kills. Clint Eastwood is the man with no name. Lee Van Cleef is waiting. The name of the new film, for a few dollars more. <laughs> when two hunters go after the same prey, they usually end up shooting each other in the back. When the chimes end, pick up your gun. Try and shoot me, Colonel. Just try. It's the second motion picture of its kind. It won't be the last. Hello, welcome back to K Have You Seen, the movie podcast with hot takes on cold viewings. My name is Kyle. I'm Kari. And today we're discussing the 1965 Italian Western for a few dollars more. Um, as we discussed last week, it is uh, the second of three Italian Westerns that Clint Eastwood starred in for the director Sergio Leone. It is kind of the forgotten middle child in that trilogy in a lot of ways because it wasn't the originator and it wasn't the most famous one which is the third one, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, um, okay. And the first one is... Uh, Fistful, Fistful of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars? Yes. I was, ho I was trying to figure out what the third one was, but none of them had dollars in the name. Right. So yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, so the first one, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about like where this kind of fits into the broader like Italian Western canon. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, a little bit of housekeeping. Of course, if you have not already, please subscribe to this podcast so that you get the latest episodes right away. Um, be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram, um, rate and review our episodes on, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, most importantly, tell your friends, tell all your friends tell who like all. movies, yep. tell all your friends who like podcasts, tell all your friends who just, you know, like stuff in general. Like yeah, we're, stuff. Well, that's our demographic. People who like stuff. People who like stuff. That's a, you know, they say to focus in on your niche and that is our niche. That's them. We, we found them. Indeed. So, a uh, few dollars more. Um, it's a, as we mentioned, an Italian-directed Italian Western, an Italian-produced Western shot in Spain starring two American stars. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, a jumble of a whole bunch of things that happened at a weird kind of a time in uh, this early period of this, what became known as Spaghetti Westerns, the cycle of movies that became known as Spaghetti Westerns. Yes. And I am really just fascinated with this kind of subgenre in general, um, 
and uh, just very briefly, I kind of wanted to, you know, for anyone who's not super familiar, mm -hmm. Kari, I recommended a uh, documentary for you to watch yes. about the history of this genre um, called The Spaghetti West. It's available on YouTube for anyone else who is curious about it. Um, but what, let's start a little bit with that. Did you, did you end up watching it? I did. I did end up watching it. Um, yep. It's, I, I learned a lot more. I also learned that spaghetti Western controversial term. I'm yes. sure I've thrown it around and I apologize, apologize to any Italian filmmakers mm -hmm. that might've been offended. <laughs> Some of them weren't though. So, you know, yeah. who, who knows? It's, it's up for debate, but yeah, I did. So I learned, I, we've talked about this. I have not seen really any Westerns. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure there's like one or something that. Honestly, none that I can remember, spaghetti or no. Mm -hmm. um, so it gave me a lot of background. I think, you know, being so far removed, this whole, not even just the spaghetti Western, but even the American Western craze yeah. was, what was like their 30s-ish maybe? I mean, Westerns have been the... around, the popularly accepted first feature narrative film was The Great Train Robbery right. in 1903. So that was very very early one of the first films in general you know this was mm -hmm. eight years after the invention of motion picture cameras um so westerns have been around forever um and it's you know westerns have been around for about as long as motion pictures have right um so the genre is as old as movies themselves right and it did in the documentary it made a good point about how like we still kind of are you know, watching Westerns. And I think part of the reason we brought this movie at this time was because both of us had just seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Exactly. So it's forefront of the mind. But, you know, it all kind of blends together not really being in a cultural moment where Westerns are quite a craze, although yeah. maybe they're coming back with, with movies like the one just mentioned. Um, but it, it was interesting to see all the nuances to the different phases that Westerns have gone through from moving from this kind of white hat, black hat, yeah. American produced film and TV, then moving to Italy where they started getting much more complex, a lot more kind of anti-hero and yeah. the morality got very blurred. So I think the things that I think of when I think of Western, I realized how compressed all that was. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that I would have necessarily like separated out the white hat, black hat idea mm -hmm. from the kind of Italian, you know, the Clint Eastwood yeah. Western genre, which he kind of crossed over, it sounds like. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I realized how kind of many twists and turns there were in mm -hmm. this history. And now pointing out that, yeah, 1903 probably was the first Western movie. There's a lot of history that, that you know, has lots of rooms for twists and turns. Hey guys, this is Kyle cutting in. Um, we talked for about 15 minutes uh, during the episode about a little bit of history and context regarding spaghetti westerns as a subgenre and a cycle. Um, if you're interested in that, you are more than welcome to listen to our special mini episode, Appendix 1, um, where I've just cut out that conversation and posted it as its separate thing so that if you want to just get straight to the chase and listen to our discussion about for a few dollars more, we're going to pick that up here in just a second. But again, if you want to listen to our uh, discussion about the context regarding Spaghetti Westerns, then please do listen to that special mini episode. Now, back to it. But anyway, yeah, I don't want to spend a whole, too, too much more time on uh, this context stuff. Just a little bit about, like, this particular film, where it fits into the canon. Again, this was produced in 1964, so this was very early, excuse me, 65. And so this was produced very early on in this, in this cycle. Although, 
Leone's first Western, Fistful of Dollars, was hugely influential, and Italians have historically been very quick to uh, reverse engineer successful movies in, and create hundreds and hundreds of knockoffs in an extremely short period of time, as they discuss in the documentary as mm -hmm. well. And so by the time this one came out, it was a hotly anticipated movie. It was a huge hit. At the time of its release, it became the highest grossing Italian movie ever, mm. um, surpassing its predecessor, which sure. was previously the mo highest grossing. So this was like the Marvel, like, this is like the, the second, <laughs> you know, this is the end game, the Marvel uh, uh, Avengers end game Whoa. of its day in Italy. Um, and a pretty big hit in the United States as well. Mm. Um, so, uh, and uh, just a fun fact, apparently this script was written in nine days. Wow. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. There's some plot holes we could talk about yeah. that. It's, you're not in it for the script. Sure. It, yeah. Um, quickly, the cast here, Clint Eastwood, of course, obviously is a huge star. Now, this was kind of at the cusp of his major superstardom mm. um, in movies in general. Um, the connection here to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as we've been talking about, is this is the sort of career trajectory that Rick Dalton, the DiCaprio character, wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And as it's starting off as a TV actor, doing a couple of Italian westerns, and then hoping to be the next big thing, mm -hmm. which really only happened to Clint Eastwood. He was the only one of his crop who made that jump in that way. Several yeah. other actors tried, like Lee Van Cleef being one of them. Mm. Um, Lee Van Cleef was in dozens of other Italian westerns. Yeah, he has a long, like, yeah. he has a long rap sheet, but that is a good point. I, I Even in the documentary, they listed all these, like, you know, this was a star, because it really is a pretty formulaic, mm -hmm. like, you have one star, and you just make as many movies with them as possible, yeah. related or unrelated to each other, and um, I guess mostly related. They did a lot of series, yeah. it sounds mm -hmm. like, but Clint Eastwood was the only one that I recognized, at least. Yeah, So yeah. yeah. And speaking of series... This movie, Fistful of Dollars and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is usually kind of referred to as a as a trilogy. But from what I can tell, from my research, it was never intended to be directly connected. It wasn't that this is a sequel or the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a sequel. It's just they had a formula that worked. Mm -hmm. They didn't want Clint to change anything <laughs> because what he was doing was clearly a moneymaker. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to change a whole lot. But these aren't necessarily supposed to be linked directly together. Mm -hmm. uh, it just kind of plays that way. And they're kind of loosely connected. Much in the way that some people would argue that the Mad Max movies uh, operate as yeah. well. In the sense that they are linked these are ostensibly the same person, but they're not necessarily the same character. Right. Like, do, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Because, yeah, I, the storytelling, the emphasis on storytelling does not seem to be right. the priority, which is fine. Like, it's an interesting formula. I think Mad Max is a really good, you know, relation. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like, does it, does it even matter whether or not these are continuous or yeah. chronological or in any way related? Right. Um, Anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, again, we talked a little bit about Sergio Leone. And just in general, this film, I think, is really emblematic. What set him apart from all the people that kind of imitated him, I think they may, in some cases, have done some things better. Mm -hmm. But I think he was one of the best directors, period, at staging mm. shots. You see the way he uses depth and landscape. And almost every shot that he uses is either an ultra-tight close-up yeah. or an extremely wide a uh, uh, landscape shot. Uh, yeah, and... that was interesting. I think he put the camera in interesting places too. Mm -hmm. There's one shot where it's like very low, you know, on the ground yeah. basically, and someone gets shot and kind of flings themselves like mm -hmm. face into camera. 
and it's yeah it's an interesting not not at all what you'd picture from kind of a genre mm-hmm. movie yeah and the way that he has people kind of when they get shot they kind of fling around in this very kind of balletic sort of uh, uh, a spin or something whenever someone gets shot it's yeah. really strange it's like these are very violent but there's almost no blood it's like nobody's got squibs on them or anything like yeah. that people are getting shot and there's no blood they just kind of contort and then fall to the ground yeah there was one shot the one kind of flashback like mm-hmm. the, this young guy gets shot and it's like there's no blood anywhere yeah and he gets shot like three times but there was there's like kind of a tragic death towards the end mm-hmm. we can talk about but um i just everybody who died that i was like oh no like they didn't deserve that at least the actor got this amazing like mm-hmm. death scene they give them they give them just like a good 15 seconds of yeah. like give me all you got <laughs> i don't care that you just got shot in the head you can fling yourself as much as you possibly can <laughs> definitely um, and then as far as Leone is concerned, his other westerns are terrific, but they're also very, very, very long. Mm. Like, this one comes in at about two hours flat. The predecessor is about the same. You know, uh, Fistful of Dollars is about the same, about two hours. Good, the Man of the Ugly is right at three hours, basically. Ooh. And the full version is like 3.15 or something. <laughs> and then his follow-up to that, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is superb, mm. is also like three hours long. And then he made a uh, an American uh, gangster movie in... Ooh the early 80s called Once Upon a Time in America uh, that deals with gangsters in Prohibition era. It's like four and a half hours long. Whoa. It is outrageously long. God. So he didn't... He wrote make... that script in nine days too? Just uh, keep possibly. writing. Just... <laughs> God. Yeah, so he's definitely not one to shy away from extremely long films. So I took it easy, took it easy on you as well a little bit because <laughs> this is one of the shorter movies. Appreciate that. Um... And then just kind of a little bit of background for myself, like with this genre in general, I think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was my entry point. Mm. And I saw it on television and I was just immediately obsessed with it. This was probably, I was 14 or 15 or so probably. Um, and I started to kind of really seek out more about the genre. That's around the same time that I saw this documentary as well, oh, okay. um, which kind of pointed me toward a lot of other things to watch, like the original Django and um, around that same time, there was a, uh, uh, right now, one of the biggest, most popular video games around is Red Dead Redemption 2. Well, mm-hmm. the first game in that series was actually a PlayStation 2 game called Red Dead Revolver that borrowed heavily from this type of Western, specifically. Oh, okay. And so that was really cool to me. It kind of got me, you know, it kind of got me fired up about more of these movies. I'm like, okay, well, what influenced this game? What influenced these other movies? What did these movies influence? So it really triggered a big snowball effect for me um and this one felt th- discovering this particular movie from the very beginning i it was like why doesn't this movie get the attention mm-hmm. that i think it deserves and so that's one of the this one's always been kind of an underappreciated uh classic to gotcha, me gotcha yeah so anyway first impressions for you sorry yeah. we've been talking for a long time about context like no the there's first... a lot of there's a lot of groundwork to get into this um yeah my first impression um I liked it. I think it was it was a good entry into the genre as a whole. Um, it, yeah, like I said, way more violence than mm-hmm. I thought you could get away with yeah. in 1965. I do like and these all might be urban legend, but I just there's like things that float around about like old TV and old movies mm-hmm. that like oh like you couldn't show a man and woman in bed together unless one of them was established to yeah. be dead. That was one I had always heard. Yeah, and I keep getting proven wrong with some of the movies we watched, but like yeah, that does not happen. Well, um, yeah, real, real was, quick, 
that's American movies. That's that that was not a global standard, and so it's like the movies that are being produced in Europe did not have to abide by those rules at all. So the rules apply to production, not to release like that, or to distribution. Well, a lot of these movies weren't released in the United States right away, yeah. and like the fact that this happened in the '60s, that's, this is when the rules were starting to kind of go out the window, gotcha. when the rules were kind of being treated as obsolete, and everyone was just ignoring them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as far as like older movies. There's some pretty racy stuff in European movies from like the 40s and the 50s and stuff like that. It's just that by the time, you know, they may not have been released in the United States for another 20 years. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, that's, I mean, more violent than I expected. The, uh, there was a lot more kind of like mystery thriller elements yeah. than, I mean, I think I have kind of the Looney Tunes version. Like we've talked about so many times of like, if you don't, you're not super familiar with the source material, you get that next wave yeah. of reference material yes. and that informs your, your kind of thinking. And yeah, it, that is, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of Looney Tunes in this, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting. It was cool to see Clint Eastwood. I think the clean Clint Eastwood of today has a very specific, I, his brand has degraded yeah. in certain ways, unfortunately. So it was cool to see like his kind of glory days, like mm -hmm. get get why he was such a huge movie star because he's incredibly handsome, but also yeah. just like really, really sells this character and is fascinating to watch. Um, yeah, I so I, I think there was a lot of yeah same thing with the whole genre. There was a lot of nuance and there was a lot of kind of subtlety and stuff that was interesting to see. And yeah, how the how the plot was built with kind of these these twists and turns that I wouldn't necessarily expect from what I would think of as more of an adventure movie, which I think tends yeah. to be fairly straightforward. And like, this is the MacGuffin. We're going for the MacGuffin. There's twists, you know. There's there's obstacles, and then we get it, and then we win. And this has a lot more like, you know, we don't really know a lot of people's motives. We don't mm -hmm. know how things are going to get received or how things are going to play out. And that that was interesting and I wouldn't have expected it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say, like, the Looney Tunes thing that you brought up. This movie is essentially built, 75% of this movie is built out of Western cliches, basically. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Blazing Saddles level of, a, of, of just grafting a bunch of movie cliches, genre cliches together into one thing. And that was, I don't know if that was by design, but I think that is, in a sense, this movie was, at the time... Leone doing almost a tribute to Westerns of because mm -hmm. you know Westerns had been exported from the United States for decades at this point like by the time he was even a kid he would have seen Western movies in Italy mm -hmm. um, and his in, that would have influenced him much in the same way that Mel Brooks was influenced to make Blazing Saddles less than a decade later and so with Leone's version he's just doing his own kind of homage or tribute, but putting its flavor, you know, giving mm -hmm. it its own unique flavor. And so, and, and this was not lost on even contemporary audiences. Robert Ebert, uh, Roger Ebert, in his review, when it was released in 1967 in the United God. States, uh, he, he talked about how this was, quote, composed of situations and not plots, end quote, which is very apt. Yes, And he's yeah. favorably, favorably noted all of the kind of classic Western cliches that appear in this as a sign that, oh, this Leone guy, he understands Westerns. He understands the parts that make them tick and how to manipulate them into creating something that feels fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because even I could recognize some of the the tropes, but it still, it still was engaging and still mm -hmm. was surprising in a lot of places. Yeah, but. yeah. 
Um, and then, yeah, just a couple of quickly, a few movies that you might want to pair with this one. Some of the other uh, Leone films or spaghetti westerns in general, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, Once Upon a Time in the West. But then also The, the Wild Bunch is one that I've long mm-hmm. wanted to kind of bring to this podcast. American movie that was made about, about five years after this film. And was very heavily influenced by the Italian movies. It's an extremely violent American Western, but it was heavily influenced by these Italian Westerns in the same sense of like, oh, I didn't know you could get away with that. Like, we let's put some graphic violence into a Western and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but also, this, is, this movie kind of plays a little bit as like a buddy cop movie, and so I think that Lethal Weapon is a good one to pair with <laughs> this as well. That kind of, you know, odd couple, like, partners who don't particularly like each other yeah. sort of a setup uh, as well as the road warrior and apparently I just discovered today that there is uh, there was an Italian parody of this film made one year after this film called for a few dollars less um, so I'm I, I haven't watched that one but I'm very curious to check it out and uh, see how they how they parody a movie like this so shortly after I imagine it's probably like the scary movie of 1966 in Italy. Oh, yeah. I, the titles just write themselves. Like, yeah, really. Some of the, in the documentary, like, a lot of authors, a lot of British authors yes. were interviewed, um, and some of the books, are, like, the book titles are just like, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, no no effort there. Like, it was right there for you. Once Upon a Time in Italy, I think, yeah. was it? I was like, yep, yep, Basically. had to. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, the... As far as the plot, let's go ahead and get into the plot walkthrough. And there's a lot of stuff happens in this movie. Like, this has a lot of kind of twists and turns, so you can kind of try to speed through this a little bit. So the movie movie opens, it's a cold open, where you just have this really wide, like, sweeping shot of this valley, and this microscopic guy on horseback is riding toward the camera. And you hear a person whistling and loading a gun, and then he just shoots the guy on horseback. Neither of these characters is ever revealed as to their identity, and it's really not important. It's just kind of establishing that in this version of the West, life is cheap, uh, and like it has that that kind of prologue uh, thesis statement that says something to the effect of like, you know, where where life has no value, death sometimes has a price, and, and uh, this is where the bounty killers came from. Kind of establishing what the parameters of this this world and these characters is going to be. Yeah. Um, also preps you for some comedically excellent sharpshooting. Like yes. It's, it's unreal. Someone would have lost an eye, but it's fine. <laughs> Truly superhuman uh, gun stuff going mm-hmm. on here. Um, and the first scene proper that we have, Kari, as you mentioned, was uh, the introduction of Lee Van Cleef uh, playing Colonel Mortimer mm-hmm. on this train. And we he's established immediately as... Uh, the classic uh, sort of gruff badass kind of a character. Yep. He'll I, stop the train when he wants to stop the train. Before we get into that, yeah. though, I just did want to mention the um, the credits and titles, which yeah. are like ahead of their time. They were impressive graphics. Yes. And they must have been matte painting those, right? Like, yeah. It was crazy. They like Hand moved, animated, yeah. Yeah, throughout the landscape. And they just, they looked like something we would try to do today, but mm-hmm. we would do it so much easier because we, <laughs> 3D animation is of a course. thing. But um, they, those were impressive. I was yeah, and the way they uh, they would frequently have you know gunshots and stuff like that in the soundtrack mm-hmm. with the opening uh, theme with the opening theme music and having you know people's names shot off of the screen and like yeah. the, the titles like jumping around. It was a very kind of 
I don't I don't want to say avant-garde, but very much uh, creatively energizing what could be just a very boring sequence that's just kind of a perfunctory, we have to have the credits yeah. thing. And it's fun, it's fun to watch, and it kind of establishes that that mood. So yeah, mm-hmm. you're, I'm glad you brought that up. That, uh, that is something that I clocked as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Mortimer gets off the train at Tukumkari. Tukumkari, yeah. where the train does not stop unless you pull the emergency brake. Which, what were we supposed to get? So he pulls the emergency brake, and of course, like, one of the conductors comes off and is like, oh, like, you can't just pull the emergency brake. Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Like, we can't stop. And he gets off the train and is like, well, like, doesn't say any. I don't know. The colonel doesn't really say anything. And the um, conductor is like, Oh well, you know, whatever you, you whatever you want. We're happy to like make it work. Like make your stops blah blah blah. And he's like, yeah, he's like wherever uh, something wants to get off. And he's like, I did get off. Thanks. I did get like, off. Yeah. And what like what he like the conductor is so taken aback. Mm-hmm. Like it almost seems like he like recognized him or he threatened him somehow, think, but there's think, really no incentive yeah. for him to change course that quickly. I think the, in the implication know. is that just Lee Van Cleef is able to just shoot daggers with his eyes so well <laughs> that anybody that crosses him just immediately stops in their tracks and they're like, uh, 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 no, you can do whatever you want. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. I suppose. It's it, unclear, <laughs> unclear. Um, and so this is where we're established that Colonel Mortimer is a, he's a bounty hunter himself. He's in town to take down this baddie that has, a. Uh, defaced his own wanted poster to inflate his own bounty by a hundredfold right. because he's so cocky he thinks he's worth a hundred thousand dollars and Which Lee Van Cleef also kind of looked like the poster I thought so I was <laughs> kind of bit. like is it him like is he like um, it wasn't going to be a classic like looking at your own bounty po- poster and being like yeah right you know you yeah. have a good me but it wasn't it's somebody else it's somebody else and so uh this is where we we follow him into town as he's asking around, trying to figure out where this guy is. And this is his, you know, he he tracks the guy into this hotel. There's a very brief kind of foot chase where the uh, this this fugitive is 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 trying to run away from him. And Lee Van Cleef grabs his rifle and he shoots the horse out from under the guy when he's like a quarter mile down the street. And the guy starts shooting back at him. Um, and the music. This is where the music really starts to kind of shift the mood dramatically where mm. some of the music in this feels very like almost horror movie yeah. thriller-ish and when you see this guy's extremely ugly face for the first time in close-up mm-hmm. and he's trying to shoot at Lee Van Cleef but he's too far away and this sets up the fact that Lee Van Cleef has the best gun ever apparently like that's kind of just <laughs> the thing pulls out this gun that can apparently shoot somebody from a mile down the road and just plugs this guy right in the face. Yep. Um, he's very skilled. And he's like standing his ground as you can see the like like mm-hmm. dust flying up like a couple feet in front of him yep. and then you know like a couple yards then a couple feet and then he's just like pow. It's a good te- it's good tension. I think this is a really good representation of how Leone thinks visually where this fugitive whose name escapes me he's really far down the street and he's trying to shoot at lee van cleef and you can see the bullet hit the ground five feet in front of lee van cleef like mm-hmm. it just it just drops and the guy's walking forward a little bit the next shot lands four feet in front of mm-hmm. lee van cleef and then right when it gets right in front of the toe of his boot lee van cleef pulls out his gun and <laughs> plugs the guy from all the way down the block i was watching a youtube video on um it was one of those like every frame of painting yeah videos, yeah and it was talking about how like edgar wright really leverages visual comedy yes. it's not like the medium of film mm-hmm. to help the comedy which you know the video was saying like nobody else is really doing right, like this yeah. is such a wasted medium if all you're going to do is just like have the dialogue be mm-hmm. funny and uh, this i think you know sergio leone is totally leveraging like, yeah 
the film, the everything about it is like he's using all the available tools to yeah. communicate what he's trying to get across. Totally, totally. Um, and so Mortimer turns in this bounty and uh, asks about another wanted poster on the wall. And the sheriff tells him, well, yeah, this guy's been found around White Rocks. But somebody else came around asking about him. Hmm. Cut to White Rocks and it's starting to rain. And Clint Eastwood is walking into town to claim this other bounty. Um, this, uh, this Kavanaugh character. And I thought this was a really cool scene as well. The, these two character intro scenes, they're very similar in a lot of ways, but mm -hmm. kind of demonstrate how these two guys are a little bit different, but mostly the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, you know, we have Clint Eastwood walking into this saloon that's just full of shifty looking characters as, as one would expect and, uh, engages in a very cheeky little, uh, uh, Texas Hold'em game with, uh, with Kavanaugh at the mm -hmm. card table while his buddies are are, are are circling up to come get him. I love the bit with the guy in the barber chair who like stops the shave halfway through <laughs> and then we see him and he's got Goes half of his face shaved. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um, and Clint demonstrates that he can take down a guy with his karate chops. He demonstrates he can take down a guy, take down a couple of guys uh, uh, with hardly even looking at them. Yeah, three guys before they can shoot him. He gets a couple, this is one of the first ones, but throughout the movie he gets a couple good just like shooting behind his back, yes. knowing, like, we see that someone's trying to, like, I think Kavanaugh is the one who's, yeah. like, almost dead, but then is, like, getting back up to attack him. and He's and been he's, he's been like, karate Boom! chopped into submission, but he's about to get back up, and then Clint just, like, pulls his gun and shoots him yeah. for, without even looking. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we've introduced both of these guys as being extremely good at finding and killing people, yep. uh, which is pretty much their, their defining characteristics. Um... Then we get to our third main character, Indio, mm -hmm. and his gang breaks him out of this uh, this uh, jail. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be in Mexico or what, but this is another pretty good kind of scene with very little dialogue to set it up. It's just a group of guys uh, silently sneaking into this jail to, mm -hmm. to bust out their gang leader. Again, very classic Western yep. stuff. Yep. Um, yeah, and then straight from there, they go to... Um basically captured the guy who had put Indio in jail yeah. in the first place, which he had kind of, you know, it's the classic dead or alive. Right. And this guy had made the wrong choice. Yes. So, um, and they kill this man's family. Yeah. Off camera, but still pretty brutal. There's a, like a small child yeah. and his wife. And then we introduce this whole idea, which we talked about how big the music was yeah. in this movie, but there's this one song in particular that mm -hmm. plays a huge part. There's a pocket watch that Indio carries and he keeps coming back to this, like, once the song ends, like, yeah. reach for your gun. Which, the song has, like, a kind of pause in it. It has a little, like, coda. And yeah. I, like, did everyone know that song? Because for me, <laughs> I, I think know. I would have false started. And I, like, assuming India's playing by the rules, I would have shot him first because I would have thought the song was over. Yeah. There's, like, it, a good, like, just long enough beat to be, like... And then it starts back up. Not, like, oh, every, okay. not everything in this movie is as well thought out as the visuals, I would say. So <laughs> Fair. There's always so much time when you're producing an yeah. Italian Western. And I will admit that like this this kind of delay, this musical interlude to time the gunfight, it does reach for the stars in terms of drawing out tension and building it up with the music. And I think it overreaches. I mean, this is not a perfect movie, and this is like not a perfect scene. <laughs> it is, I think, you can see what it's going for. It just doesn't quite click in the way that it was probably supposed to yeah. because the idea is yes this guy's family has been taken outside and shot and so he is told now you hate me just enough and <laughs> triggers this this uh this standoff and indio in the end just shoots and kills the guy yep and that's that but then we're introduced to 
a kind of an unexplored angle of Indio's characterization, which is that I guess he's an opium addict or something. Okay, that's what because we never see him use anything. I don't think they just give him these these like I assume laced cigarettes. Oh, I think that's what it is. Okay, everyone's smoking all the time though. How are we supposed to read into that? But I I think it was just his reaction, like the way he behaves, like he needs a fix or something. That was that was my interpretation. Right. Okay, he does get handed that cigarette at one Mm -hmm. because he does have these just like glazed over. Yeah. You get the idea that he's a he's a drug addict. Yes. But yeah, that I guess I didn't connect the cigarette necessarily because I was like, what? Like everyone's smoking. Like Clint Eastwood almost always has like a cigarillo in his mouth. So I was like, okay. These are the fine ones. Right. Those are the drug lights. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, he's kind of a, a drug addict. He has, I think this is the first of his kind of flashbacks to yes. a woman and a man giving her this pocket watch. And we don't really yeah. know what that's about. We start to see this flashback. It comes up two or three times in the course of the movie where essentially what has happened is he's having this, this, this flashback that seems linked it's almost as though he is using the drugs of whatever variety to self-medicate from some kind of ptsd of something that he did yeah which is which is interesting it's he the idea is he it's not really well explained in the film but essentially what happened was at some point in the indeterminate past Indio had broken into this house where this guy and his girlfriend or wife were having this intimate moment where he was giving her a gift and he killed the guy, assaulted the woman, and then she killed herself during this whole ordeal. Right. Which already, intense stuff for a movie of this time period or any time period. Intense. And not just like, not just assaulted. Like he is actively raping her and she grabs a gun and shoots herself and it is like way more than I ever thought. It would be a lot if we saw it in a movie today and it was like, whoa, I can't Uh believe I just saw that. But yeah, and I don't, it's confusing. Like at different times I thought maybe he was like putting his adult self in a scene with that he was like a child for at first before we see, because at first we just see him kind of come out from behind some kind of banister or yeah, something yeah. and then shoot the man. And it was confused. Like neither a Halloween of them situation? Seen... Like the beginning of Halloween? I have not seen Halloween. Oh, okay. I, it just, because neither of them seems, neither the man or the woman seems surprised to see him okay. when he comes okay. in. But then he also like, he seems to have some kind of connection to the woman. Mm-hmm. It's, I never understood. I mean, we know a little bit more about that scene later, but we never know more about Indio's connection to that yeah. scene. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, that never totally resolved. It's not fully explored. Um, you get the, you get the idea of what it mean, of the meaning of that encounter and how it affected Indio a little bit. Again, I, you're, you have to, you have to kind of make some leaps to think like, okay, this is, this is connected to why he is addicted to drugs, I guess. Again, I'm not sure. It's not oh, like, fully explained. In, in, it's not even loosely explained. Yeah. And the whole, like, the whole idea, the nihilism of the whole movie, he has mm-hmm. no problem killing anyone. Right. Anyone. Yes. So are we supposed to think that, like, the fact the woman killed herself is that, like, why would her death uh, yeah, have any ex- right, more exactly. impact on him than anybody else's? Again, movie written in nine days, so there is that. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. It's it's, it, it's a plot driver for sure. Like, the yeah. final confrontation is rooted in this scene, but we don't understand why right. he self-medicates against it or any of that. Yeah. But anyway, so anyway. 
Indio's out of jail. He and his band of baddies are planning a robbery in El Paso. Yes. And uh, the, the very short sequence where his bounty hunter, or where his bounty posters, wanted posters posted mm-hmm. outside the wall, and it cuts from him laughing to the, the, <laughs> the shot of him in his laughing face on his mug shot. That was amazing. That was amazing. It was great because it, you get that really intense music sting every mm-hmm. time they show it. And then it cuts between the poster and Clint Eastwood and the poster and Lee Van Cleef and it cuts back and forth so fast and it's punctuated with the gunshots. I thought that was really cool. That's something you just don't see. It was and it was, it it seemed comedic. Like it it was funny in the way it was cut but you're also like, it's it's not necessarily a funny moment in the plot. Like contextually it's not funny. But just the editing makes it like, you it's, know, the back and forth and then him like freeze framing in the laugh. Yes. It's just, it's, it's, it's one I of laughed. those, it's one of those moments where in this film of many moments in this film where something is played as either in the movie, it's played as far more intense than it needs to be mm-hmm. as opposed to the flashback, which is played as not nearly as intense as it probably <laughs> needs to be yeah, in some cases. Fair. Uh, I do wonder, so this establishes the kind of tension of like, okay, both these bounty hunters are going to go yes. get this guy, and they're both very skilled. Yes. So like, we don't know who could win. Uh, I wonder if that was a common thing. Like, you know, there's no, it doesn't seem to be any regulation on bounty hunters. No, like, not really. There was no like, you know, list queue and that you can mm-hmm. be like, oh, great. Like, you've got an opening. Here's <laughs> it's one. Not like like, being, it's not like being a like a Uber or Lyft driver where there's like <laughs> one to one. one in the queue. You have one assignment now. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder if that was a common, it's just whoever gets to him first. So yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of bounty hunters in the same general vicinity <laughs> sometimes. I also don't, anyway. I also feel like bounty hunters in general are overrepresented in this genre. I don't know how many people actually had that as their, their profession. Yeah, right? Like, I guess it's an easy way to, not easy. Yeah. It's a way to make money that you don't have to report to anyone. Right. And did it work that you just like brought a dead body into any city and you're like, I think, here, here he is. You I gotta pay you me had, $10,000 You got now. the wanted poster and you got the person that kind of looks like the wanted poster. And if you got a positive idea, I guess he could bring them to whoever. I yeah. don't know. I, I really don't know. Uh, who knows how anything got done before 1999 anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's like Before the internet. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so... We find out that Indio's band is planning to rob the Bank of El Paso, or yes. at least our, our heroes find out, right? Because the colonel goes to the goes to a bank and says, like, "What's the most secure bank in the U.S.?" Is basically, that, or, or in the it? in the area, basically, mm-hmm. and because he he sees this wanted poster, and this is kind of his research. Um, in again pre-internet, yeah, of course. So he goes to talk to this bank manager and finds out that the Bank of El Paso was the most secure bank and it's holding holding the most money. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it is kind of a, again another logical leap, I would say, to infer that that is exactly <laughs> where this person is going to go. Um, but as it turns out, he is correct, right. and we get uh, Eastwood arriving in El Paso mm-hmm. and having this uh, in, like. His, his interactions with this little kid, this 10-year-old Mexican kid, I this guess. This worldly wise stable boy, uh-huh. yeah. Who, who directs him to this hotel where he is uh, inclined to throw somebody out of their room so that yeah. he can get a room. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's kind of funny, I guess, but it's also just essentially reinforcing this idea that Clint Eastwood is a guy that does whatever he wants in this right. world. Right. He's not a moral guy. Like, we right. don't know anything about the guy staying in the room he wants. Yeah. He just throws him out. He doesn't kill him, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And the hotel, there's a, 
you know, hotel owner, hotel owner's wife yes. thing there, which the stable boy tells Clint Eastwood, like, yeah, like, there's a, you know, a lady hotel owner there. And Clint Eastwood's like, is she married? And she's like, yeah, but she doesn't mind. And you're <laughs> <Right>. like, okay. <laughs> yeah, Italian, Italian movie. The kid knows what's up. For sure. Um, um, and we cut back to Indio's gang. The rest of the gang has now arrived. And in uh, classic Western movie fashion, they announce their arrival by shooting the church bell and <laughs> come inside and play a goof on one of their friends by shooting his spur and things like yeah. that. It's, uh, it's a little bit much, and they find out that one of their guys is now locked up as well. They're not really that concerned about it. And Indio gives this really long monologue about essentially saying, we're going to rob the Bank of El Paso. Yep. And he delivers it, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, he delivers it from the pulpit of this destroyed church, which is a really interesting visual also. It yeah. is like he is delivering a homily in church. It's really kind of... Uh, uh, kind of a unique thing, and again, where the kind of Italian uh, cultural influence uh, kind of gets grafted onto this otherwise very American-style film. Yeah, I'm sure we could dig into India. Like, is India a reverse Christ figure? Mm -hmm. Like, I yeah, there's there's places you could go with that. Yeah, but that's for another day. That is for another day. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then Mortimer comes in to the bank of El Paso and he's kind of scoping the place out. I'm like, all right, this place seems secure enough. This is probably where they're going to rob. The, mm -hmm. This is probably what they're going to rob. Um, and then members of the gang come in as well. Uh, and we get a great scene. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is where the three members of Indio's gang come into town and they go into the saloon and Clint Eastwood comes into the saloon as well. Mm -hmm. And Lee Van Cleef is in the saloon as also, and Eastwood is kind of watching the interaction between Lee Van Cleef and the gang members, and he, he does that thing where he strikes the match on... Oh, Klaus yeah. Kinski is the actor who plays the hunchback named Wild. That is just the character's name. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Nine days. Yeah. Um, and he's an interesting guy on his own. Uh, Klaus Kinski is a psychotic German actor who has a very long acting resume and also just a... A very controversial person on his own right. Like an actual human. Like an actual human, yes. Oh. Um, he featured a lot in the documentary. Yeah. So it seems, and he was, they some of the clips, I, I forget which movie. Maybe it was Django again. Um, no, it was one of the, I think it was he one was, of the later Django's. He was, he was the in, bad guy that was like, he's just yes, like yeah. off the rails. That was bad. a movie called The Great Silence, which is also oh, very good. Right. It's another mm -hmm. Corbucci movie who directed Django. Um, anyhow. So he gets into a situation, uh, Van Cleef gets into a situation where he's staring down Klaus Kinski, striking a match on his back, mm. and Kinski really wants to kill this guy. Really wants mm -hmm. to kill this guy. But his other gang members are, like, stopping him from pulling his gun. And Van Cleef ends up taking the cigar out of his mouth to light his pipe and looking him right in his eyeballs the yeah. entire time. It's a really good, tense scene, I thought. Which makes you wonder, because at this point, Clint Eastwood is at least aware of the Colonel of Mortimer mm -hmm. being in town and probably has some idea of why he's there. Yeah. You've got to figure, I think, I just, all this to say, you wonder how much of that was premeditated yes. for the plan that he's about to enact. Right. But It was an interesting way to kind of test his theory mm -hmm. that these guys are in town to rob the bank. So the whole idea was... If these guys don't react to me doing this, they're here for something else and they don't want to 
put a kink in their own plans. Right. They, they don't, don't want, want to get call attention. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they keep it a low profile to rob the bank. So I thought that was kind of a smart plot device. It was an mm-hmm. interesting way to present it, and it was a good character moment too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's one of my favorite scenes in this movie, personally. Yeah, that was. It was interesting, and I like to believe that it is. It's informed in multiple ways because I think we do kind of see that Mortimer is. He's like playing four dimensional chess in yeah, some ways yes. on some of this. So. He's. Anyway, he, yeah, we'll get into some of the, <laughs> but he he's got a plan and he's. He's, he's almost like a Tyrion level character of like oh there's he's almost like a, a uh, like a, like there. a Loki type trickster character in yeah, a lot of ways yeah in in this kind of like you know double switch bet like yeah. you think something's like this and then it changes and then he knew it was going to change yeah. and yeah so yeah we'll get into that. for but. sure um, and so then we get to the part where all parties concerned are now casing the bank they're mm-hmm. all watching the bank to see how long it takes the guards to get all the way around the building. Why do they have three guards walking the same time? Why didn't they scatter them so it took like four seconds for each of them I, to get in front of the bank? The but, best I can think is that it's harder to take out three guys who are clustered together than three guys who are separate. I'm not entirely I sure. So, I, I don't know. I Again, written in nine days. Um, that's going to be my go-to for anything <laughs> that doesn't make sense in this movie. Just spoiler alert on that. Um, and that's kind of a cool scene, too, because it does establish that you've got all these people who don't necessarily know about each other, and they're all essentially doing the same thing to prepare for the same moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the scene is capped off with the really fun uh, moment of Mortimer scanning around and noticing that Clint Eastwood is across the street looking at him through binoculars, <laughs> and they both see each other. It's really good, yeah, and, that, and yeah. that that prompts them both to start doing research on each other. Yeah, which so Clint Eastwood goes to some old guy, the old timer, the old. So is that just like he's the he's the old timer? He knows everything because yeah, he's very right. old. That's it's the like, idea, I think. And play he's here. got <laughs> a hilarious like his like just whole characterization is that he hates trains and the way that like. <laughs> You know, maybe older generations today hate the internet. Like, the trains, the trains. They said they want to build it in my backyard. And I said no. And like, and just he, it's all because of the trains. He's got this whole backstory. That character who's in one scene has this entire backstory about how he had the chance to make a lot of money off of selling his land to the railroad, but chose not to. And now he's just constantly vexed by the train going by his little hovel. Yeah. And everything is because he's, he tells um, Clint Eastwood, Monko, about the, about the colonel and where he came from. He was a war hero, you know, mm-hmm. with his valor. He was a great guy. And now something's changed and he's he's a bounty killer and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Gone to the dark side, more or less, even though he's still bringing in baddies. And um, he is like, yeah, he used to be a good guy. But then the trains. Like, it's all because of the trains. <laughs> so who knows yeah. how the trains led to uh, the yeah. colonel's from grace but whereas the colonel just goes to the library and looks up old newspapers and happens to find a nice full body photo of clint eastwood (laughs) uh collecting a bounty bad just a bad move as a professional (laughs) bounty killer to have a full you know full body picture of you in the newspaper but i guess india didn't see it so um or maybe india doesn't go to the library are you kidding me he's too cool (laughs) to go to the library um and so this triggers the, uh, what I called in my notes, the this town ain't big enough for the two of us scene. Very apt. Where the phrase is not spoken literally, but it is enacted in a very theatrical kind of almost pantomime where Eastwood has hired or convinced the, uh, uh, like some, like a steward or houseman of the hotel to take 
Lee Van Cleef stuff out of the room and take it to the train station, which kind of oh, baits, right. which kind of baits Van Cleef to leave the hotel, go out on the street, and that's where they face off for the first time mm. with the little kids hiding under a porch and watching this all go down. Which I thought that was a great little yeah. little seasoning onto this uh, into this scene. And a classic: take his bags to the train, take him back to my room, take him back to the train, take him back to my room. Uh-huh. It's like, which of these two like bad dudes do you <laughs> listen to? Like, who are you more afraid of? And of course, uh, Clint Eastwood shoots the hat off his head and then continually shoots yeah. it down the street so, so he's moving farther and farther away. Exactly. And this scene, again, really brilliantly blocked and staged, I thought, in mm-hmm. the sense that it starts with the two of them sizing each other up, staring each other down, scuffing each other's boots, and then Clint <laughs> yeah. Eastwood takes a swing at the colonel, punches him down to the ground, and then knocks off his hat. The colonel mm, goes to pick right. up the hat. He, picks, he goes to pick up the hat, and before he can reach it, Clint shoots the hat down the street, and they repeat this six times. Until finally it's too far. It's just too far. Mm -hmm. And so then the colonel picks up his hat, puts it on his head, pulls out his best gun ever, (laughs) shoots Clint's hat off of his head, and then shoots it up in the air five more times. (laughs) comically over the top. Oh, yeah. It was just the best way to stage a pissing contest you could. Like, Absolutely. It was so funny and childish. But, like, yes. was it aware of how childish it was? I I would argue yes. Yeah, and I believe I, it. I think that one of the defining characteristics of these Italian westerns is that they all wanted to just go big. Mm-hmm. Anything. Like, they weren't going for realism. They were going big. And exactly like you said, this is the most dramatic and kind of entertaining way to stage a pissing contest you could imagine. Um, and then after the hat finally falls to the ground, it's like a hard cut to two bullet riddled hats sitting on a table next to each other, which is just a beautiful cut. Amazing. Um, and so these two characters form this uneasy partnership. Yes. Which leads me to one question. Who is the main character of this movie? Hmm. Is one of them, because Clint Eastwood is the star. Right. But they kind of are on even footing for who is who is the main character. And Mortimer is the one who like really experiences some kind of change of yes. state yes. in the movie. So if, if you're going by those rules, I really do think you can have two kind of main characters. Yeah. But if, if we're going by protagonist change of state, it's definitely Mortimer. Right. I think I think it's almost equal because they both have... I don't. We don't really have any more access to one of their Mm-mm. minds than the other. Like both of them are kind of kept at arm's length mm-hmm. for us. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I think it's almost it's a toss up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they form this uneasy partnership, which ends in a plan for um, Monko to an- enter into Indio's band. From in you know take them down from the inside mm-hmm. while Mortimer will take them down from the outside, which right. conveniently because Mortimer would be recognized by them, which yes. I kind of think this plan might have been cooking for longer than Monko knew. Yes. But um, it, there's also a little bit of a dynamic of like Mortimer is slightly older, more kind of worldly wise in experience. Yeah. Even though Clint Eastwood is like 35 in this movie, it's not yeah. like he's, he's a not young super, buck out super there. Super young, yeah. Yeah, but he's. You know, he, you can. They kind of play Mortimer as much more. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got a past that he's, he's dealing with, whereas he's Franco a soldier. Is he's here got he's a he's a he's a he's a seasoned veteran. He's a he's a professional. He likes. He seems like the type of person who would 
who would say something like slow is smooth, smooth is fast or something like that. <laughs> Whereas Eastwood is supposed to be the wild card here where mm-hmm. even he is pretty reserved and very, you know, very cool in, yeah. the, in, in the one sense. And he uh, is just kind of, you know, going guns blazing right. more or less. And he's unjaded in a way that Mortimer yeah. isn't. Not that he's like optimistic and bright eyed, but Mortimer has this like, you know, capital P pain that he yeah, is. You yeah. can tell he's trying to rectify, and we don't know what that is right when it enters in, but um, yeah. Monko's more just like, he's in it because this is what he does, and mm-hmm. he, need, he wants that money. Um, so they decide to split it and um, decide that Monko's going to join the gang, and by doing that, he to get into the gang, he needs to go break out uh, Sancho Perez yes. from... Another jail. So yeah. they start moving with that. He breaks him out. I mean, not a lot happens in this sequence. He breaks him out, brings him to Indio, mm-hmm. and Indio's like, Indio's gang is, you know, not trusting of him at first, but they're like, well, why are you here? And he's like, well, I want to rob a bank. Like, well, what he are... first says, what he first says is, uh, I want to collect a bounty on all of you. He just tells them straight oh, up. Oh, that's right. And, he, yeah. and then they kind of eyeball him and then Indio says that's the that's the that's one the correct answer, answer. Yeah. yeah uh so ostensibly they buy his his story as kind of a uh, a sarcastic jab because he gives them he's like well like I heard you guys I figured you guys or I saw you guys just robbed a bank and I figured the next I want in on the next yes one. exactly Either that or I'm gonna collect the bounty on all right of you. yeah and yeah, that's yeah. what yeah they were like oh okay mm-hmm. so then the plan becomes so he is just kind of brought in that's good enough for them and <laughs> the the plan that they hatch is that Eastwood, Monko, and a couple of the guys from the gang are going to go rob a different bank as a decoy to draw all the, you know, every armed man out of uh, El Paso, Mm -hmm. except for the last security guard inside the bank or whatever, so that Indio and the rest of the gang can go in and and rob the place, which is actually a pretty good plan. Yeah. In the logic, in the world of this film, that's actually a pretty sensible plan. It makes sense. Um, and Eastwood takes advantage of this and kills the guys that he was assigned to and then uh, goes to the nearby telegraph station and coerces (laughs) the elderly telegraph operator to send a telegram to El Paso saying, oh, this bank just got robbed. Right. And again, a pretty good, pretty interesting plan in motion. It's It's all working pretty nicely. And so there is no robbery in that other town uh, what is it? Santa Cruz? Is that the name of it? Oh, maybe it was Santa Cruz. I think it was yeah. Santa Cruz. And everybody still leaves El Paso, leaving the bank of El Paso unprotected. Mm. And Mortimer is watching the bank. Eastwood comes back and he's watching the bank for them to rob it. And a lot of time goes by. They see the gang approach. And this is another one of those great kind of silent scenes where I thought that it played great with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And the music really plays in nicely. It builds a lot of suspense and tension waiting for something to happen. Because as the gang approaches and Eastwood and Van Cleef see the gang coming in, it gets to the point where they think, okay, something's not right. They should have moved by now. What's mm-hmm. going on? And it's all communicated wordlessly by like their tension. Mm-hmm. Another thing we haven't really mentioned so far is that throughout this movie, so much is communicated to the audience by having a close-up of somebody who's just their eyes are shifting mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. It's very, very ostentatious, I would say. And it really, I, I love that. I think that's really great. Yeah. And none of the main characters have, I guess Indio kind of does, but like like a, a wide, fa- like mm. some actors like just have very expressive, but like, you know, you think of Clint Eastwood and he's got that scowl always. Yeah. Um, even Mortimer, even um, Van Cleef is like, 
he's his facial expression is always kind of very cat-like almost yeah. like he's got mm-hmm. this like this kind of smirk at all times but both of them you you still totally get what they're thinking yeah. and what they're telegraphing for sure um so finally the gang blows a hole in the back of the bank and grabs this cabinet which we have been clued in is where they're holding the actual strong box with all the money right uh that's what india learned from his cellmate that he killed in the escape and that's what he told them in the church is that everyone thinks the money's in the vault, the money's actually in this cabinet. Mm-hmm. And so that was the key information that he had. So he's like, if we steal this cabinet, then we have all the money. We don't have to rob the vault, we can just take this cabinet. Gotcha, okay. I thought they had made the vault into it. Like, I was like, they're still going to figure out, even though it's a cabinet, they're uh-huh. going to figure out there's like a safe in there. Yes. But I guess if there is a decoy safe, that I right. missed that part. So the bank was doing something very smart, which was misdirecting attention to this giant vault that they have behind mm-hmm. a cage, when in reality they're holding all their money in this wooden cabinet in right. plain sight. And so that's part of the information that, you know, Monko and Mortimer do not have right. that Indio has. Um, and so they they shoot up the, the bank, you know, who's left in the bank, and they haul this cabinet into the back of a wagon and they they haul ass out of town. Right. And so this triggers uh, Eastwood and Van Cleve to mount up and ch- start to chase them and they get you know, separately, and then they meet up along the route, and uh, Eastwood's like, forget, our partnership is dissolved, we're not working Mm -hmm. together anymore, I'm going in alone. And so Van Cleef gives him a little nick on the neck, shoots shoots him him right right in the neck. neck. (laughs) Gives him like a little little nick right there, also demonstrating that these are superheroes that we're dealing with, these are not mortal human beings. And no one, well, I guess there's a couple like bad shots, but like, even one of the gang members at one point like shoots the cigarillo out of Clint Eastwood's yes. mouth. And it's just like everyone is so A accurate. total dead eye. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I got the impression that Mortimer knew that that was going to happen. Didn't he? He was like, oh, that was only one phase of the plan. Unclear. Like, this Unclear. Is, okay. <laughs> this is where I was like, okay, I could believe that Mortimer's like playing three-dimensional chess. Like he might like have four-dimensional like, chess. This might have been one of his potential outcomes he probably the impression that i got was that he thought they were going to do one thing and they didn't do that so his backup plan is his backup idea of predicting what the gang was going to do involved okay so they stole the money they got away from me now so my plan b is to chase them down and do this other thing right because he does say like well they're even more valuable now because the bank will pay to get the money back right so yeah i was i I think it's more interesting to choose to believe because otherwise it's a, a little like oh, okay, like yeah. written in nine days. Written. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to give them the benefit of the doubt that Mortimer knew that all of this was gonna happen. Yeah. But anyway, he convinces Eastwood to go back with this Nick and say like you know they got all the other yep. guys, but I was hurt and whatever. Yeah. Um, so he goes back to uh, Indio's gang mm-hmm. and says like you know everybody else is gone, yeah. but I and they see the you know the. The wound that <laughs> yes. he came back with and believed that he was uh, uh-huh. he was the only survivor. Exactly. And so they let him back into the gang, but Indio's like, okay, smart guy, you go clean out this town, Agua Caliente. <laughs> Hot water is the name of this town. Yeah. Go go clear out the town. The locals are, are not friendly and uh, you'll, you'll be back in the gang. So he essentially goes and intimidates these three gunslingers from the town uh, by shooting apples off of a tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's assisted, he's joined again by Mortimer, who is now back in, who who is followed behind. This wasn't part of the plan that he told 
uh, Monko about, but this, right. he's just showed up now. So it's they're they're back together. Um, they've essentially cleared out the town. They've intimidated the locals, and so uh, the rest of the gang comes in. And uh, Klaus Kinski recognizes Lee Van Cleef as the guy who lit the match on his back in uh, El Paso, yeah. and uh, this tries, this prompts him to just kill Klaus Kinski, and that's that. Yeah, he starts a shootout. Klaus Kinski starts a shootout in a bar, and all the gang members respect it. They're yeah. like, it's a full. The whole Indios band, more or less, is in this bar with the only stranger being um, Van Cleef. And uh-huh. they have this shootout, and the gang, instead of being like, hey, that guy killed our friend, we're going to kill him. They're all like, cool well, with it. They're all he fine. started a shootout, <laughs> yeah. this is what happened. This exactly. is the laws of the West. Exactly. Um, and so then Van Cleef is like, oh, I could open that safe for you. I know exactly how. And mm-hmm. he makes a deal... And I guess uses liquid nitrogen or something like that to That's crack what it the lock. Like. Is that, is that, was that a thing back then? I have no idea. Okay. I honestly have no clue. But uh, uh, he dr- takes his eyedropper of stuff that I guess cracks an important part in the lock. And then thing, they yeah. open the safe. And so now the money is available. But Indio says, nobody gets a penny of this money until I say so. We're going to sit here and cool off until people forget about us and think we're long gone. Is that what... So, Because he was like, nobody can have this money... Because then they'll catch all of us. Is it like a serial bills thing? Like if, Unclear. If one Unclear. of them gets caught because it's hot. Okay. I was like, because he's like, we'll sit here for a month if we have to. Yeah. I get they were trying to be forgotten. But does that mean like. You, I think he was like, probably more concerned about like money? the yeah. Goodfellas situation where if like they catch mm. one person, they can catch all of us. Sure. And so what they okay. wanted to do was make sure that everybody's laying low until the story is no longer at the top of mind for anybody. And then once the heat has died down, we can collect the money and we can go do whatever. Yes. So he establishes that. And that night, Eastwood and Van Cleef independently go to the room where the money is stashed and try to make off the cash. Mm-hmm. Um, importantly, and this is kind of where the details get lost for me sometimes, even after having seen the movie, they both sneak into this barn or mm-hmm. whatever where the money is being stashed. Mm-hmm. Van Cleef picks the lock. They take the money out and put it in like a saddlebag. And then he puts the lock back on the box. Right. So from the outside, it does not look like the money is gone. So right. from, So the box is still locked. So if anybody comes in, unless they're just opening it up to check on the money, it just looks like the box has been untouched. Right. But also, so they sneak out the saddlebag. They put a, the saddlebag in like a tree. Yes. Yeah. Because they're climbing down from the roof. And as they're climbing down, which was also a really great way to frame this, like both of them end up putting their foot on like the shoulders of somebody yeah. who's below them. And yeah, cuts one to of them face. like grabs their boot, and I think Clint Eastwood puts his foot on like Indio's head. And yeah, <laughs> yes, both yeah. of them do a like, uh oh. <laughs> and so they get caught. But like, if the gang didn't think they were caught stealing the money, mm-hmm. What did they think? Like, why did they not think to check where the money was? Unclear. Okay. Unclear. <laughs> like, they were coming out of the Written place the where days. the money was left. And then, because that, to me, I was like, when eventually we realized the saddlebag is still in the tree right. much later. Like, nobody also, wondered where the money was? Also, it's a bright white bag in a tree with six leaves on it. <laughs> yeah. There's like no, it's all sticks. It's a big, Yeah. Anyway, okay, that was yeah, that so, was pretty uh, huge. But moving so on, so they get caught snoop. I think the implication was that is that they were just caught snooping, mm-hmm. and they were attempt. And Indio and a couple of other people know that that is the building where the money is. So the mm-hmm. fact that they were snooping around there makes them untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And so that's the best inference that I can make, I guess. 
And, and yeah, and then we figure out in Indio has suspected them the whole time. Yes. Which I was kind of hoping. Convenient. He was like, I knew from the beginning that they were bounty yep. killers, both of them. And I was like, why? Tell me how. Like, how did you know yeah. that? Like, I thought there was going to be like an Inglorious Bastards, like three versus three yes, thing. Yeah. But no, he was just like, I knew. Yeah. Put and him in jail. Exactly. And he has his second, Nino, let them go mm-hmm. and say, here's your guns with no bullets. Now get out of here. And then it's revealed that he was doing this on Indio's orders because Indio knew that they were bounty killers. And so the idea being like, you guys get out of here. And 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 Indio's like, okay, well, they'll come back. Mm-hmm. And when they do, it's going to be two against the rest of the gang. Right. Essentially trying to finish them off. Which, why didn't he just shoot them in the first place? Like, he's got them... If he wanted to kill him, why didn't he just... Oh, 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 I remember now. Because he wanted them to even out. He wanted them to kill part of his gang so that they wouldn't have to share as much of the money. Right. Didn't He said something about, like, what if they found their bodies near the El Paso bank? And, like, right, blah, blah, blah. yeah. So I thought he was going to frame them That's exactly something. what he was going to do. He was going to okay. leave the bodies nearby with some of the cash to make it look like there had been a gang dispute mm. over the money. And that they had all killed each other. So that he could get away scot-free, having nobody know that he was part of the robbery. So that he and, like, I guess just Nino and a couple other people. And then Groggy kills Nino. And he's like, okay, me and Groggy then. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No problem. Sub out Nino for Groggy. So he's essentially doing a uh, what the Joker does at the beginning of The Dark Knight. Which is Mm -hmm. get a bunch of people to help me rob the bank. And then have them all kill each other. Yep. Smart. Oh, there was the one, they, like, frame... um, Cuchillo, I think, was the... Yes. Just another gang member that we haven't really seen much of. Um, they frame him for killing another one in the gang. And he's yes. like, I didn't do it. I didn't. And that was tragic. But it's then, of bad. course, they shoot him and he gets to, like, roll down this whole <laughs> right. thing. And he's, like, flinging himself, like, three extra times uh-huh. than you ever needed to. But <laughs> I felt better for him because I was like, at least you get this dramatic you got a moment. Great, but, oh, great it was so scene. sad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's essentially sending out the gang, like, oh, they've stolen the money. Mm-hmm. Go get them as fast as possible, please. Like... So Indio is also playing four-dimensional chess in this this scene as well. Yeah, yeah. He's Um, one smart, (laughs) drug-addled, traumatized, I don't know. But he, yeah, so he's sending them out to kill each other because he has recognized how good Mortimer and um, Monko both are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, And so, yes, as the rest of the gang has gone out to essentially entrap, play this game of cat and mouse with Monko and Mortimer, Groggy then gets the drop on Indio mm-hmm. in the barn with the cash and essentially is like, I'm tired of this. This has gotten completely out of hand. I'm taking the money. Mm-hmm. And they open up the box. And what's in the box? His poster. His laughing, laughing at poster. Him. Oh, and they bring back the music cue, which is just so good. It's such a beautiful moment. And again, one of those kind of pure cinema moments <laughs> where it's it's just such a perfect reveal and then Indio in the movie is laughing and the poster is laughing and Groggy is like, what's going on here? This guy is insane. Where's the money? Yeah. And so he is essentially holding Indio hostage in the barn while he tries to think of what to do and Indio is just laughing at him. Yeah. Which is terrific. It's such a good moment. Indio has a couple good, like talking about just villain tropes, like those good just like something terrible happens that you'd expect him to freak out about and then he and you're like okay uh-huh. he's cracked yep um and then yeah. we also see the um we cut from there to showing Monko and Mortimer playing a uh, essentially a first person shooter <laughs> video game <laughs> with the remnants of of Indio's gang in this town uh including the really wonderful moment the really I, I think one of the best moments in the movie is 
when some of the gang members see the door shut and they think that uh-huh. Eastwood is inside of this hut and they kick open the door because they see his hat is poncho and they shoot, they just like, pow, 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 shoot the poncho and he's in a desk chair and just flings around and shoots all of them. Which it looks like that when he flips around, like they increase the frame rate yeah, a little yes. bit and I don't, I, I don't totally know how that would work with film but it is like, it's just like, it feels a little bit like the scene in A Christmas Story where Ralphie is like imagining himself with the Red Rider BB yes, gun yes. and he's like shooting all these bad yes. guys and they've got the X eyes yes. and literally that's, they're just like mowing people down exactly. and like they are ahead, three steps ahead of everyone at every turn. And yes. It's so funny and so good. And he does the classic like his poncho and hat are just on a coat rack so they're it, yeah, like the old shooting at it. Yeah. Oh, so good. No, but it's a good, it's a good, it's a good shootout moment. Yeah. I thought they gotten, they had gotten much farther than they actually, cause they end up shooting everybody down and then the building where Indio's in is just like right there. So yes. I, I thought that they had run, cause it's like daytime at this point. Like yeah. they hadn't gotten very far, but I no. guess they were kind of laying in wait. I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, then the final confrontation with yes. Indio. The connection between Indio and Mortimer is revealed um, in very loosely in the sense that Indio's pocket watch and Mortimer's pocket watch play the same tune, which we find out because they're about to face off. Ooh, this was good. Mortimer's got no gun. Uh, you know, his gun's on the ground mm-hmm. and there, and, uh, you think he's done for Indio starts playing the pocket watch and does the same thing he did in the church with the other bounty hunter. And then the tune continues when Eastwood shows up with the Colonel's pocket watch yep. playing the same tune. And he's got a gun on Indio. He gives his other gun to Mortimer to put on. And at this point, it's kind of interesting because you know that Indio knows that no matter what happens, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Like, essentially, he knows that this is the end of the line for him. Right. And Eastwood gives him the gun, gives uh, Mortimer the gun and just sits and yeah. waits. And yeah, you're like, yeah, whatever. Whatever and, happens, but you know. Yeah. You know, he's and it's, a this, better gunslinger. it's It's the really cool kind of like three people around a circle mm-hmm. arena. It's a very artificial kind of environment. Yeah, but it looks gladiator really cool. feel. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's the Italian. There's that Italian thing, <laughs> that gladiator uh, uh, Roman circus coliseum thing. Yes, yeah. And so it, it culminates, and as anyone can see from a mile away, Mortimer kills the bad guy. You know, yep. Good guy kills the bad guy, and uh, he has that kind of lingering death scene where he just kind of collapses, and you think he's still alive. He pulls up his gun, and then, ugh, and then he just collapses. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was going to come back. I thought Mortimer, because he starts, like, walking up on him, or he drops his gun or something, and he, I thought, I thought maybe that uh, Indio would end up being, like, like, last death shot. <laughs> yes. But no, that doesn't happen. He's dead. Right. Um, and Mortimer, in a unexpected turn, says... You can keep the money. I don't. Yep. I don't need it. I'll. I'll get it next time. He because... was there for Indio all along because yep. in the the woman in the flashback was his sister, which is strange, dramatic plot but twist. Yes. I thought maybe he would be the guy in the flashback because we realize yes, the pocket watches yeah. are the same, so we realize the woman is somehow what connects them. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. His, I thought it was gonna be daughter actually. I was like, I thought so too. It's not really possible that that guy lived. Maybe this is his daughter, but he's like, yeah. It was my sister. Like, there should be a family resemblance. That was my sister. I think it was supposed to take place okay. like, farther in the past than it's led on. Mm. Because if you look very closely, you can see that the actor who plays Indio has gray hair in the main mm-hmm. movie and black hair in the flashback. So it's like, uh-huh. that's, it's a very, very slight <laughs> aging up. Fair, um, fair enough. 
So anyway, yeah. So it's a, it's it's a very much like a kind of a soap opera reveal that's again tacked on as though this movie was just written in nine days or something. Um, <laughs> as if. <laughs> and the ending though. So Mortimer's like, yeah, I'll get him next time. Like you know, I got what I needed out of this. You can have all the money. So Clint Eastwood is loading up this wagon yes. full of bodies. And I doing love this his ending, little, by the way. So good, doing his little tally of like. Okay, that's fourteen. That's seventeen. That's yeah. 24. He's adding up, adding up the bounties for each person <laughs> yeah. in his yeah. And he's just a little short, and then Groggy pops up behind him. Yes. And in another like the guy who the you guy thought was shoot dead, you. and he does right behind the back, and yeah, he's... it's it's great. And in and uh, you get this great. You now you get this great scene of Eastwood riding, the, leading this wagon full of bodies. Not secure either. Not like secure. half of them are kind of dragging on the ground yeah. almost. So, um, so he's got thousands of dollars worth of bodies in the back of his of his wagon. And then as he's passing by the tree, he was like, "Oh, almost forgot," and grabs the bag of <laughs> yeah. cash, which we've been led to believe that the amount of money stored in that safe is an unimaginably high amount of money. I think like, they said like forty thousand dollars. In insane. Point, so now which... this guy's sitting on like. $66,000. Which in, like, whatever, Adjusted for inflation days, is yeah, like a billion been, dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they have a great exchange at the end, too, where Mortimer, like, hears the ex the last gunshot mm -hmm. and is like, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, I just thought my adding was wrong. Like, exactly. I thought I made a mistake with my math. <laughs> just kidding. I got and the actually, last one. Now that I, now I'm thinking about it, the reward for returning the cash is $40,000. And oh. so the amount of money in the bag must have been... Far more than that. Oh my god. Um, so, and knowing Eastwood's character is probably not going to return it. It's going to be like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where the money is, but these guys are, you know, I got these guys. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's it's such a, a great ending for this particular movie. It's yeah. like, and the colonel rides off into the sunset, Eastwood rides off to the bank or the sheriff's office or wherever, and that's it. That's the movie. That that's is it. it. Yep, yep. Um, I I always come back to this as kind of just one of my favorite westerns for sure, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a big fan of westerns in general just because this this story takes so many weird twists and turns, and it feels like it was kind of thrown together, <laughs> but in a way where they just kind of needed a loose story to connect a lot of cool visuals and cool scenes and cool character moments, which I'm fine with that. I think mm -hmm. that's that's a perfectly good excuse for a movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it's entertaining, and at the end of the day, that's what we want. Like, yeah, I, I thought... I thought it was good and it was effective and enjoyable to watch. So. Good, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, any notable scenes or moments or just general things that we haven't didn't get to in the in the in the plot rundown? Um, yeah, I I think we covered a lot of. Oh, there was one moment that I just thought was funny. But so earlier in El Paso, Clint Eastwood tells the stable boy like, "Hey, tell me if you see any strangers." Oh, yes. And he's like, oh, I've seen a stranger. He's coming out of the hotel right now. He's like, oh, really? Where's the stranger staying? He's like, in that hotel. I yeah. was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, it's stupid. And that kid keeps trying to shake Eastwood down for more money because he'd yeah. be like, I did see somebody the other day. And Eastwood gives him like a dollar a or quarter, whatever. A quarter, yeah. And the kid says, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I saw some, And the guy coming out of the hotel right now. And Eastwood's like, where's he staying? And the kid's like throwing the quarter up in the air. Yeah. Like, he's like, Gives him another corner. He's like in that hotel right there where he just walked. The out worst of. money you've ever spent, Clint. <laughs> that was just do some detective work. Until like the next time when he says, "I saw some more people." Quarter. He's like, <laughs> "But I didn't tell you about that other guy." He's like, "All right, shut up. Just tell me where the people are. No more quarters. Uh, no more quarters. You got enough quarters." Um, oh no. Okay, I think you are right. Just going over some of my random notes that I wrote down. I think you are right that they were aware of how childish it was because. 
the kids at one point say like just like the games we know yes and i was like okay yep no it's self-aware yeah that was a I big lampshade for sure um yeah i i think we covered most of it okay i don't get why no one shot indio before the music end i agree i i don't of either. all the things to be moral about like this yeah. is the one thing we chose this is truly like lawful evil like <laughs> i uh, yeah but for sure anyway yeah. yeah um okay cool and uh just any, any parting thoughts i mean i'm glad that you liked this movie i am i you know i tried to find one that kind of split the difference between like the really weird <laughs> italian westerns which there are some ones that get <laughs> extremely strange um and kind of bridging that gap between you know this isn't the originator of that genre but mm -hmm. it, it's like the kind of the first one that came out from the originator after making this kind of game-changing film. Mm. And so I thought it was a good representative of the spectrum overall. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad we watched this one. Now, having seen the documentary, I realized how intense it could have gotten. Intense and insane. You know? I'm not sure I'm going to delve that deep into this, <laughs> but I would definitely delve more deeply into the scholarship about yeah. Westerns in general and about um, Italian Italian westerns sure. to and be I, a PC about it, and I would I, I would definitely recommend like if you enjoy this movie, uh, I do think that the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, even though it is very long, it is a really good film. It's a better film than this, I would okay. say. Uh, it's just very different. And then Once Upon a Time in the West, same thing. It's a very long film, but that one is kind of the it, it's it's Leone's last like Western proper, I mm -hmm. guess. And it's a totally different cast. It's like not connected to these Eastwood movies at all. Just a totally different kind of story. I I, I think that is probably his best one. Mm -hmm. And none of them, he, he had a very specific idea of what he wanted his Westerns to be like. And these imitators did interesting things as well, but took it to weird extremes just for shock value and to to set themselves apart and stuff mm. like that. So he kind of kept it, I don't want to say pure, but he had a very specific idea of what he wanted to achieve and his movies play that way. Gotcha. That uh, actually reminds me of one more thing. Yeah. The Clint Eastwood character, um, there's, a, there's a line in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which now the uh, title makes a lot more sense. Uh -huh. But uh, one of the costume designers is getting a note about like, they want to put Rick Dalton in an outfit that like he could have worn out on the strip that night. Right. And that is totally what Clint Eastwood's like, they do such a different styling with the two uh -huh. of them and also very different from like, you know, what you would think of, of the American cowboy with like, you know, the bolo tie and uh, all just very right. clean and jeans and boots. He's in much more of kind of this like American Indian inspired. Mm -hmm. He's got a poncho and he's much more gruff. He's got this like fur vest, mm -hmm. but that felt very like, okay, this could be, this could be uh -huh. a look now. It could have been a look like out in Hollywood in the 60s and it's clearly a look in Well, it's, it's funny 1800s. that you mentioned that. All of those clothes came from Clint Eastwood's personal wardrobe. Really? That outfit came from his personal wardrobe. He brought wow. it to Italy with him and they were like, this is perfect. Great. He wears it well. It yeah. looks good. I'm glad, I'm glad he at least got to keep it, if not provide <laughs> yeah. it. So, um, uh, apparently, yeah. this is just, again, another minor aside, but uh, apparently, many, many years later, Clint Eastwood gave that poncho to a friend of his and it was on display in a Mexican restaurant in LA for years. Wow. And I don't know if it still is, but just for years it was just on display in this Mexican restaurant. That's so funny. Uh, but anyway, I think that's all Great. All the thoughts I have for now at cool. least. Cool. Okay, well I am glad that you liked it. Do you have a three sentence review? I do. Um, all right.
Uh, not a Westerns aficionado myself, this gave me everything the Looney Tunes led me to expect from the Western genre, with much more mystery and thriller elements than expected. Though at times confusing and gratuitous, seeing Clint Eastwood in his glory days and experiencing a genre that has so clearly informed many of the auteurs of today is sometimes worth the violence. Italian westerns are a world unto themselves, but this is a pretty good entry point. Nice. Excellent. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, without further ado, what do we have to look forward to next week? Yeah, so I am going to deviate from our... Uh, choice giving and i'm mm. going to give you the other option you didn't take oh, okay. last time so um another pretty influential genre film mm. of its time Kay, have you seen the princess diaries i have not seen the princess diaries it's just a classic and i really want to watch it so that's oh, why okay. we're gonna i've been delving into netflix's queue of old you know early thousands movies recently <laughs> okay. so this is a good one and, and you've got to see it at some time it's all really, right it's important and it launched one of the biggest stars of our day yeah an oscar winner so uh you can yeah, see where I mean, uh julie andrews didn't really do anything before that movie yeah did she? no she's just really <laughs> this is really her coming out if you will um <laughs> Yeah, Anne Hathaway, Julie Andrews, what more could you want? Sure. Um, yeah, this is pretty iconic, so I'm excited to think what you th see what you think. Great, I can't wait. I also can't wait to get into a, an in-depth discussion about why people hate Anne Hathaway. Okay, yeah, I, I can't defend that opinion. I don't agree. I don't so either, and I'm, I'm baffled and fascinated can, by it. We can delve into it academically from yeah. a third party, you know. Or I'm going to go deep on this one for sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's what I've got for next week. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, please like and subscribe. And uh, 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 if you want to get more of our stuff and the first, be the first to know when our new episodes publish, of course, uh, definitely subscribe and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, yeah, tell your friends. Give us a give us a rating and a review. We'd love to uh, hear what you think. And uh, if you have suggestions for movies that we should watch, uh, if you are interested in being a guest on our program, uh, also feel free to email us your suggestions uh, at khyspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, so Princess Diaries for next week. Until then, my name is Kyle. And we will see you next week. Bye.